Jesus said, peace I leave with you. He said that on Tuesday of Passion Week. In three days he will die, and about 46 days he will ascend to heaven. But his peace remains. It says he left it. It says he gives it. His peace is available. So the starting point, the confident position of peace is this. To have the peace of God, you first have to have peace with God. Now, what's the difference? Peace with God means your sins are forgiven. That by faith, you believe on Jesus alone for the forgiveness of sins. Another way of saying it is simply this. You're genuinely born again. Peace with God is the prerequisite to the peace of God, and here's why. Before you repented of sins and trusted in Jesus, you did not have peace with God. You didn't have it. Now, perhaps as far as you were concerned, you had peace with God, but God was not at peace with you. Romans chapter 5 says, in our natural state, we were enemies of God. Ephesians chapter 2 says, we are children of wrath, not children of God, children of wrath. And a person might say, come on, I'm not an enemy of God, I'm at peace with God, but it's a false peace. Adrian Rogers used to say that most Americans are strutting their way to hell thinking they're too good to be damned. Deceived by human pride and humanistic philosophies, men and women don't realize that by nature, God's wrath hangs over them and they will experience it forever upon their death. But because God sent his son to save the world, that wrath can be removed from you. Jesus took that wrath on the cross for you when your trust is in him alone for the forgiveness of sins, God will be at peace with you. This is the peace he left. This is the peace he gives. But look again at verse 27. Jesus said this peace is not as the world gives. The world talks about peace while it prepares for war. The world tries to create peace, peace talks, peace treaties, and we see more unrest and more division than we did the day before. In fact, the world believes its problems can generally be fixed by three things. More money, more regulation, and more government. But it's never the recognition of sin. It's never the repentance of sin. It's actually believed that peace comes through the acceptance of sin and the affirmation of sin. Human nature is at war with God. I mean, look around. It rejects God's law. It hates God's word. And therefore, it rejects God's Son. The result is continual conflict between people and God. And that God-word conflict that exists in people becomes outward conflict, people at war with each other. God invites all of us to live in a different way, to live from this confident position. Peace with God opens the door to the peace of God. Yet there are many today who would say, I have peace with God, I'm saved, but I don't have the peace of God. They're unsettled in their mind, they're unhappy in their heart, they're unsure about their future, anxious about so many things. Now, some unrest, of course, is natural and normal. Vexing problems create great unrest in the human heart. Physical problems, past traumas create anxiety. 
But when we're deeply troubled, we need to know God's way, God's way of finding peace, and he has not left us wanting. We have to start from this confident position. And then number two is in Philippians chapter 4. Take a look at that. This is a calming command. It says in verse 6, be anxious for nothing. Some of you know this, probably most of you don't. About 14, 15 years ago, I battled anxiety for a time, especially when I was on dialysis or close to it and after my kidney transplant. And I had a panic attack one Saturday night. It's the only one I ever had. I had a panic attack one Saturday night starting about 1030. It would not abate. I did not sleep a wink. So about 3 to 4 the next afternoon, I called Randy and Rhonda Wager. They graciously came over. Rhonda was a psych nurse. And I said, do I need to be admitted? Because I didn't know what was happening to me. And she explained that I was having a panic attack. I couldn't come off of it, and Dr. Weatherford graciously came over and rescued me from it. There are reasons for anxiety that are unexplainable. So these verses are not a magic wand to wipe away every form of anxiety you're going to face. But if we practice these verses, key word, practice, we can find the peace Jesus left with us. Verse 6, be anxious for nothing. That verse is imperative, present tense. That means it's a command. Don't worry. Jesus said, don't worry about what you'll eat or what you'll drink or what you'll wear. Who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Worry is a sin. And you say, how could it be a sin? It comes so natural. That's why it's sinful. The flesh is really good at it. In order to worry, you have to temporarily remove your faith from Christ and place your faith in yourself or other people or other things. When you worry, worry becomes the Lord of your life. You dethrone Jesus and enthrone worry. Now, your mind might say, don't worry, but your flesh says, I will worry. This verse is a command, so how can it be obeyed? This is something I've said a couple weeks ago, and I'm going to say it in the future weeks. I want you to remember this. There is no demand placed on your life that isn't a demand on the risen Lord Jesus Christ who lives inside of the believer. So look at the next step. These verses are so practical. We go from a calming command to a clear instruction. Keep reading in verse 4. It says, But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So here we have a fourfold instruction. Number one, pray comprehensively. In everything, by prayer, let your request be made known to God. Everything. Well, now, is there something I shouldn't bother God with? Well, it says everything. Just for the fun of it, I looked up that word in a Bible dictionary. Here's what it said. All, meaning all kinds, of every kind and sort, including every possible variety. I think that covers it. There's great freedom here. Is there anything too small for God? It says everything. Is there anything too big for God? Genesis 18 says, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Well, am I bothering God by asking? 
Luke 18 has a story about a widow who was very persistent. She bugged an unrighteous judge so often that he finally gave her what she wanted. God is a righteous judge. And Jesus said, will God not bring about justice for the elect who cry out to him day and night? However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? By faith, pray comprehensively. Second, pray persistently. Verse 6 says pray. We get the word prosecute from that prayer. That means to continue in a course of action with a view to its completion. So, thinking about the Super Bowl next week, I don't see any Chiefs jerseys today. Man, last week it was a sea of red. You, today, just today, you are Patrick Mahomes. None of you look like him. None of you play like him. None of you make that much money. But you are Patrick Mahomes. You are quarterbacking your cause. You're trying to move the ball down the field. You're prosecuting your case. You're opposed by the devil and his demons. You're blitzed by time and weariness and uncertainty. And the middle linebacker is maybe your own pride. But the Bible says pray without ceasing. This is something you can do all day. Pray 10 second prayers, one minute prayers. I try to do this throughout the day. Stay with it. Don't give up. Prosecute it. Pray persistently. Thirdly, pray specifically. Verse 6 says pray with supplication. That word means to pray for particular benefits or a petition for oneself. So pray more than, well, be with me, Lord. Well, he's omnipresent. You don't need to pray, be with me. And sometimes we pray, bless me, because we don't know exactly what to say, but don't even pray, bless me, Lord. Be specific. What do you need? If you aren't sure, ask the Lord for wisdom. We always want to seek wisdom. Ask him for wisdom. Ask him for clarity. What are the things that would come into your life that would bring you a lasting peace and then prosecute that. Stay after it in prayer. For example, in 1 Samuel 11, Hannah is childless. And in that culture, it stigmatized her. And of course, you know, that's something that people struggle with. It's a source of pain. So she prayed, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but give your maidservant, a son. So she called herself a maidservant. She's humbling herself under the mighty hand of God. And second, she prayed that God would see her affliction. And third, she prayed that he would give her a son. Be specific. And when you pray specifically and God answers that prayer, God gets the glory and your faith increases. Now here's the fourth thing, and this might be the most significant. Pray gratefully. Verse 4, or excuse me, verse 6 says, pray with thanksgiving. No matter the prayer, you can say, Lord, thank you for the privilege of prayer. Thank you for the shed blood of Jesus that allows me to pray and bring you these requests. Thank you that I know you have heard these things and you will do what is absolutely right, whether I understand or not, and I can rest in that because you are God and you are almighty and you are wise. But there's a question here that can arise. God is omniscient. That means he knows all things. 
And in Matthew chapter 6, in a section about fear, Jesus said, Our Heavenly Father knows our needs, so why should we pray when God already knows what we need? Before I went in the ministry, I was a deacon in my church, and a fellow deacon, you're not going to believe this, a fellow deacon one night told me, we don't need to pray. And he was very happy about that. And I said, well, excuse me, he said, well, God knows everything, so why should I pray? I mean, this was like amazing discovery he'd made. And not being all that experienced in God's word, I said, well, because he tells us to in the Bible. You know, that wasn't a bad answer. But he went away quite sure of himself that we don't need to pray. And again, he was really happy about it. <laughs> Why should we pray if God is omniscient? That's a different sermon, but one reason is this. When you pray, you are inviting God into your life. Otherwise, in prayerlessness, you're living as if you don't need God. You're living in your own strength. So pray. And Jesus said, when you pray, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows, your Father knows. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So talk to Him as a son or daughter would talk to a father. You don't have to search for perfect words. You don't have to try and pray like stained glasses coming out of your mouth. Talking to Him, talk to Him like a child would to a father. I think there's a reason for some prayerlessness. Some folks don't pray because that sin they don't want to deal with, they know it's going to come up. God exposes those things through prayer. And those sins can be a reason for a chronic lack of peace. And until you repent of those sins, you will not have peace. But realize as you pray... God grows you. Let me illustrate this. Let's say you pray specifically and it goes unanswered. And you pray persistently and it goes unanswered. God might be showing you that what you're praying for perhaps isn't the best outcome or even in God's will. And along the way, what you really learn that might bring you peace is that you need to walk more closely with him. You need to live in the fear of God instead of the fear of man. You need to live with an eternal perspective instead of being worried about all these temporal things. Prayer opens our eyes so we learn what God sees as valuable. And when we pray, we begin to learn how desperately we need to depend upon him. Anything we have, anyone we love, all that we are... Any peace that we have comes from his gracious hand. It is very easy to forget that. If he gave us everything that we needed, we would take him for granted in 24 hours. So prayer is a means of dependence on him. That's a clear instruction, and it leads to a comprehensive peace. Look at verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That word keep means to garrison or enclose in a fort. The Lord will post a guard around your heart and your mind. It's supernatural, verse 7, beyond all of our understanding. But notice specifically what it guards. Your heart and your mind. 
Your heart is the very center of your being. It's the deepest part of your soul. To be saved, Romans chapter 10 says you have to believe with your heart that Jesus was raised from the dead. Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. Part of this deals with our emotions. Painful situations bring strong emotions. Let God's peace control those emotions. And I want to give you some practical ways. Now hang in there with me on this. When we pray, we don't need to daily repeat every detail of our problem to God. He knows it. During the day, we don't need to rehearse the problem to self. That drives it deeper into your heart. And at any time, we don't need to release the problem to the world. They don't need to know it. I would counsel you against repeatedly putting your problems on social media, especially more than once. I know there are some annual things and there are exceptions but if you post your problem on social media, you'll get 200 hearts and 100 I am so sorry's, and you feel affirmation. So you post the next day or a week later, 200 likes, 100 I am so sorry's, more affirmation. You get that dopamine hit from that social media affirmation, and it makes you feel better, and you begin to crave that affirmation. Here's the problem. The cycle of rehearsing the problem. You're just rehearsing it over and over again, and when you do it, it magnifies the problem and it minimizes Jesus. Certainly share your pain with others so they can pray for you, but when over and over and over again you rehearse the problem to yourself and you release the problem to the world, you drive the rut deeper into your heart, you drive the cut deeper into your heart, and it maximizes the problem and it minimizes Jesus. That problem becomes bigger and bigger. It drives you into a canyon, and at some point you can't see to the left or the right. You can't see any solution. All you can see is the problem. Consistently rehearsing it pours gasoline on the fire of anxiety. And at some point, you're leaning on your own understanding. So look at this. It's no accident that verse 8 follows here. This is in context. Look at it. Paul said, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Think about those things. Focus on them, and the Lord will guard your heart. But there's a second thing in tandem with this, and perhaps most important. The peace of God will guard your mind. As a man thinketh, so is he. The mind is the battleground for peace. So look up at verse 4. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I'll say rejoice. This was not written by a theologian in an ivory tower, nor by someone who hasn't been punched in the mouth by the problems of life. This was a man beaten, stoned, and left for dead. So look at verse 5. He said the Lord is near. He was conscious that Jesus was with him. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. We focus on the never forsake, but we forget about the never leave. He's with you in your circumstances, so rejoice always. That's part of changing your mindset. But here's the second step, and hear me out on this. Don't jerk me out of the pulpit. Have a positive mental attitude. Now, Christians have avoided that statement, and rightly so. Norman Vincent Peale 
misused it. Prosperity preachers abuse it. But it's no coincidence that verse 8 follows verses 6 and 7, and it says to dwell on positive things. You know, I'm just going to tell you, I'm coming from a place of experience on this. Not that I've done it right. I didn't say that. But I've been there, done that. I've been chronically ill since I was 24. Two kids that are chronically ill, ups and downs, day after day. Hundreds of doctor's visits over the years. By the way, they named a room at St. Luke's Hospital after me this week. Did you see that on the news? Um, (laughs) If you deal with that in a negative way, you won't make it. You'll ruin yourself and everyone around you. God has given your mind more power than you think. I'll never forget the synopsis of a case study I read. It was tweeted, or today I have to say X'd, by a nephrologist on Twitter. There was a patient, and he had to have been part of a clinical trial. It said he decided to commit suicide, and he swallowed a whole bottle of antidepressants. He changed his mind and went to the hospital. His blood pressure was 80 over 40 and he was admitted. The attending physician was summoned. He notified him that he did not swallow a bottle of antidepressants. He swallowed a bottle of placebos, whereupon his blood pressure immediately normalized and he was released. God has put power in these minds. Now, if you're not paying attention, pay attention to this. I'm not saying you can control your circumstances with your mind. You can't wash away your pain and problems with your mind. There's this horrible lie of the word of faith movement that says, speak a word of faith, believe it, and blessings will come into your life. And if you don't, if it doesn't happen, you don't have enough faith. I am not saying that. I am saying this. God has given us power, love, and a sound mind. You may not be able to forget your problems, but they can be minimized And Jesus and his peace will be maximized when you focus on positive things. Now look at verse 9, and remember, this is in context. It follows verses 6, 7, and 8. Paul said, these things which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, key word, practice these things. Do them over and over practice these things and what does it say the God of peace will be with you do what you've read in these verses and there will be a supernatural peace so there's a confident position do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior Nathan appealed to that Kirk appealed to that and now I want to appeal to that today that wrath that hangs over the unsaved Jesus died on the cross To take God's wrath in your place by faith, you can have eternal life in him. You can do that today. You can be in this confident position. And then a calming command, be anxious for nothing. Every demand placed on your life is a demand on the risen Lord Jesus Christ who lives inside of the believer. And then a clear instruction, pray comprehensively, persistently, pray specifically, pray gratefully, And then there's this comprehensive peace in your heart and in your mind. Practice these things. And friend, if you've never been saved, we would love to talk to you afterward. There's a QR code in that chair in front of you. Scan it. There's a couple options to pick. Pick the right option. We'll be in touch with you tomorrow if possible. We want to have that conversation with you. Thank you so much for being here. I pray for the peace of God for every one of us.